We have been doing a study on the parables this semester, and this is the last one. Oh, just too bad. I thought we were going to have another week or two that we could have preached, but we ended up having to cancel our meeting, as you may recall. Um, so this is the last parable. And I thought I would do one that's it's very familiar, but I think it's a good message about what is the heart of Christianity um, would be a good way to end for the semester. After all, this is the Christmas season, right? The Advent season. And uh, there's a lot of to do about Christmas without much reflection on what Christianity really is all about. Um, it's not just, you know, a cute little baby, you know, that was born. Um, the baby came to die. That's the heart of Christianity. And um, this parable gets at that and shows how ugly it is when people try to embrace a relationship with God apart from understanding that it's about the death of Jesus that enables us to have a relationship with God. That's the heart of this parable. Um, Now, we're going to talk a lot tonight about self-righteousness. And before um, we get into it, I thought maybe I should just spend a second talking about what righteousness is. It's one of those Christian words that gets thrown around a lot, and maybe, uh, maybe you're fuzzy on what it means. It wouldn't surprise me, because I don't think it gets defined very much. But think of righteousness this way. It means not just to be in right standing with God, where he looks at you and says, yes, you've done the right things, good boy, good girl. Um, really, the best way to think of it is, it's to be seen as beautiful in God's eyes, because you've done everything that he required from the heart. That's what it means to be righteous. It means to be beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything that he requires from the heart. So we would distinguish it from um, just sort of giving lip service, doing the things that we know Christians are supposed to do or people are supposed to do, but it's not really from the heart. That's not righteousness. But it's also not merely sort of this just abstract legal status. It has the connotation of beauty. The Bible talks about the beauty of holiness. And so it's something that's pleasing to God to be in this, in this state of righteousness. And now, if, if that's what righteousness means, then of course self-righteousness means to look to yourself or the things that you can do, the things you have done, the things that you haven't done in some cases, to offer up to God uh, sort of your resume, if you will, to say, here's why you should think of me as beautiful, because I've done these things, or I haven't done these things. Therefore, I'm beautiful in your sight, right, God? That self-righteousness would be to, to, to look to yourself, to something you've done or haven't done. Or maybe some people, I would say, even look to what they wish they had done. And think that God obviously will grade on a curve, and it's enough that you wanted to do better. Um, and, and, but still, it's all things originating from us that we offer up to God and hope that he will look at it and say, Oh yeah, great, you're beautiful in my sight. You've done everything I required from the heart. Way to go. That's self-righteousness, okay? So righteousness and self-righteousness. Well, Jesus dealt with people all the time who were trusting in their own righteousness, that were trusting in themselves and what they've done and what they could do and thinking that God would be pleased with that. 
Now, in Jesus' day, this you know, particular group of people were like the Jewish leadership. It's often people, the most inside kind of religious people that have grown up in church, that have been around religious stuff all the time, that have found it a way to make themselves feel powerful and better than other people. These are the kind of folks that in Jesus' day were always getting into arguments with him because of debates about where righteousness had to come from. Now, here's the thing. Everybody, everybody knew that they needed to be righteous in God's sight. The Bible says it's actually written on your heart that you weren't made just to do what you want to do. You know in your heart of hearts that you were made that you have a responsibility to live in a particular way. The Bible says that that law is written on your heart. Now it gets distorted and we try and drown it out. We try to keep it down um, in lots of ways, but it still keeps breaking through. And so everybody has this problem of knowing that they need to be beautiful. They know that they need to be beautiful. It's the theme of so many movies, so many songs, this universal desire, and and I would say lust, to be beautiful in the eyes of another. And, you know, you can try to turn it off. You can try and say, well, I don't need that. I don't need anybody to like me. I don't need anybody to love me. I don't need anybody to think that I'm beautiful. But the fact is, you were made for that. You were made for that. And it's not enough. You can tell yourself all you want that I don't need to be beautiful. I don't need to be beautiful. I don't need to be beautiful. But the fact is you're hardwired by God to bask in his approval and to hear him say, you are beautiful and I'm in love with you. It's what the Bible says human beings were made for. And if we, if we reject that or we try to, to sort of, you know, deny that part of who we are, it keeps It keeps surfacing in all kinds of interesting ways. If we're not getting it in this sort of relationship with God, right, in the vertical, then we'll look to horizontal relationships or things to try to get this need to be seen as beautiful met. And this is what the Bible says is so much of what's wrong with our relationships. See, here's the thing. God created you not just to be in a relationship with him, but with other people. And, and, that, and relationships can be a wonderful thing. The problem is when we put too much weight upon them because we demand from them things that we can only fully get from God. Like the, the, the ultimate, you're beautiful and I love you. It's wonderful to hear that. It's wonderful to stand you know, in the front of a church and, and hear somebody make those kind of vows to you when you get married, right? But even that is not enough. You are made for something even even bigger than that, right? So this issue of righteousness, it's not just a religious problem. Well, in a sense, it is a religious problem, but it's not just a problem that people who are trying to be religious have. It's a problem that everybody has because everybody is incurably religious, even if they don't call it that, because every one of us has to deal with the issue of beauty and beauty and and the need to be seen as beautiful. That's the context for this parable, actually. And, and Luke makes it very clear um, why Jesus tells this parable. Look, if you will, in Luke chapter 18, start at verse 9. Jesus uh, tells this story, and Luke tells us the context, which is important, so we'll start with that. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, and those two things always go together, as we're going to see, 
to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, or more literally in the Greek, prayed by himself, standing off by himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Though actually in the Greek it says, the sinner. The definite article is there. It's even stronger than the NIV has it. Verse 14, I tell you, Jesus says, that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. We thank you that you are going to help us tonight to see self-righteousness for what it is. Help us to see it in ourselves that we could turn from it and turn to you, the only righteousness that works, the only righteousness that's truly beautiful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Self-righteousness is devilishly difficult to diagnose. It's difficult to diagnose. But one of the ways you know that it's working in your life is when you look down on other people. And uh, I, I think, you know, if you want to get at this, if you, if you want to say, well, you know, I'm not really a very self-righteous person, all you have to do is think about who have you been critical of? What have you been critical of this last week or even today? People bug us. They annoy us. We think that they're wrong. We're impatient. We criticize. And, and almost always that criticism is at the root connected to our pride. To our pride. Now, it's difficult to see it. Not very many people go around and say, well, I'm self-righteous. You know, yeah, I am. You got me. Though Christians, if you've been around church very much, you know that you're supposed to agree with the fact that you're self-righteous, right? Because the Bible says that we shouldn't be self-righteous, and so most Christians feel guilty, and so they figure, well, then I must be self-righteous. Um, but it's difficult to actually own it and say, yes, I am self-righteous, and here's where I'm self-righteous, Here's what I'm trusting in. Here's this ugly, you know, thing that I'm offering up to God, hoping that he's going to think it's beautiful. Yeah, here it is. It's difficult to diagnose in yourself. And so Jesus gives us this picture. And this picture here, there's all kinds of clues that I think will help us see what self-righteousness is and even be able to examine ourselves by this picture. Now, the first thing you need to know is the setting of this parable. The story that Jesus sets here is of people going to church to a worship service. We know that from the language that Jesus uses. When it says that they went up to the temple to pray, everywhere in the Middle East, even to this day, people don't say, I'm going to church. They say, I'm going up to church to pray. 
This is a, almost a technical phrase. It's a way of saying, I'm going to church. He, they're not going just to have personal, private devotions up at the temple. There were two times every day where the sacrifice happened and where people would, at a point in the service, pray corporately but also privately. And yet they pray out loud. The setting here, like Jesus doesn't have to make these people say out loud for purpose of the story. This is how the Jews prayed. They would pray out loud two times during the day that this happened at noon and at 3 p.m. So the context for this story is public worship. It would be like, you know, going to church and having a time where in some churches do this. Sometimes uh, the church I attend, we do this, where we'll let people just be able to speak out prayers and everybody can hear. That was what went on regularly as part of Jewish worship in the temple. That's what they're going to do, okay? That's the setting. And the prayers happened as this animal was being sacrificed. Right at that moment is when you could offer up individual prayers out loud to God. So we have these two people, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now the problem with us today looking at these stories, particularly if there's a Pharisee involved, is we know that the Pharisees are the bad guys. But you have to believe me that in Jesus' day, they weren't seen as the bad guys. The Pharisees were well respected because they were the ones that really, really cared about God's kingdom and God's ways and God's holiness. They were the ones who really were not content with what was wrong in the world, right? Much like you guys. They were the ones who said, things are not right. The Romans are here. We're not able to worship God with authenticity and and real zeal and real uh, uh, integrity. So we're going to do it anyway on our own and hopefully be an example to sort of call other people to want to live lives that are more courageous and more sold out for God. That's, That's who they are. Most people deeply respected them. Now, a lot of people sort of put them on a pedestal and thought, we can't be like them, though a lot of people were attracted and drawn into their party. Jesus says at another point in one of the Gospels that the Pharisees were very evangelistic, that they were very zealous to win converts. He says, you know, I commend you for that. The problem is you make them twice as much sons of hell as you are, but at least you're evangelistic. You're trying to spread this movement. And people were really intrigued and attracted to them. We must not just dismiss them as hypocrites too quickly. As a matter of fact, if you see this story and you read this story and say, well, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee, do you realize you've become just like that Pharisee? Because he's the guy that stands up and says, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And we read the story and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee. And and we kind of are, just like that person. I would never do that. I would never stand up and pray and basically not ask God for anything, but instead preach a little sermon to this guy over here. But I bet probably some of you have done that. I know that anybody here who's been around Christians for very long has probably been in some setting where somebody prayed what was really a little sermon disguised as a prayer. Because Christians do it all the time, right? Where they sort of want to say, you know, I was with these crazy kids, you know, we were a bunch of immature kids in high school, and we used to do this sort of thing all the time, where we would, you know, one guy would finish praying in our little group, and we would always end saying, and I pray that Joe will pray next, you know, and then Joe would have to pray because... He just was prayed that he would pray next, right? Like, what? it's ridiculously stupid. But that's what this guy is doing. 
Um, so, you know, who are the Pharisees? They're not just to be seen as hypocrites. They're seen as very religious people. Everybody who heard this story would have been shocked at Jesus' conclusion. It would have whopped them right upside the head. What? This guy is justified? Not the Pharisee? Jesus, did you hear the story you just told? All the things that he does? I mean, look at his body language. He's so obviously concerned to not be defiled. He stands away from everybody else to make sure that he's not defiled by somebody who hasn't obeyed all of the laws of ritual cleansing and eaten the right things. He's very concerned about holiness. Um, he, he listened to his prayer. He rehearses some of the things that he's doing. He's obviously really sold out for God. I mean, listen to this. See, he, he says things in his prayer that are so over the top of what even the Bible asks you to do. And I, 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 the Bible asks for some pretty strong things. But you do know, actually, the law, the Old Testament law, only required Jews to fast one time a year. They're only required to fast one day on the Day of Atonement. The only time they were required to fast. The Pharisees said, well, there's three major festivals in the Jewish calendar every year, and we should fast two days before and two days after. So they upped it from one day to 12 days. But this guy says, what? I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. The Old Testament law said that you need to give 10% of certain things. The Pharisees, sorry, not the Pharisees, yeah, the Pharisees in Jesus' day and some of the rabbis had said, well, basically anything that you grow that you have to kind of watch over and wait for, you should probably tithe that. But this guy goes farther than that and says, I give a tenth of everything I get. Again, beyond what the law said that he needed to do. But look at, look at, Look at the picture of who this guy is. I mean, while at one level that might seem very impressive, there are all kinds of other clues that this guy is not the kind of guy you want to be with. He's not the kind of guy you'd like to hang around with. I mean, look at him. What's amazing is how blind he is to his arrogance. Because self-righteousness is often subtle and we don't see it. But his body language, start with that. He stands by himself. The NIV says he prays about himself, and that's actually true, too. It's sort of a double entendre. He does pray about himself. He doesn't really pray as a Jew would normally pray. There were three things that the Jewish rabbis in the first century said your prayer should include for it to be a real prayer. Three things that prayer could be about. Um, you could thank God for his gifts. That was an appropriate kind of prayer. You could ask God to meet your needs. Um, and then you could ask him for mercy. And this guy doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of the things. So this prayer, when you actually look at it, it isn't a prayer at all. Instead, it's, like I say, a sermon um, hidden in a prayer. He uses phrases commonly applied in the first century to tax collectors. They were seen as robbers. And, in fact, most of them were. The way you got to be a tax collector in Roman-occupied Judea was you bid for it. The Romans would sell off the right to be tax collector for a certain area. They would sell it to the highest bidder. And then you were required as the tax collector to give Rome a certain amount of money that they deemed was the appropriate amount of tax to come from that area. But you were free to charge the people in that region whatever you wanted. 
All you had to do is make sure that Rome got what Rome expected to get. But you could ask for whatever you could get. And you could use the force of the government to get it. So yeah, they weren't good guys. They were crooks. They were robbers. Everybody knew it. But what's interesting is this guy goes beyond that and calls him an adulterer. There's no evidence that this guy is an adulterer. It's very much like the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that the older brother says to the father that your younger son, the younger son, squandered his living, squandered his inheritance on prostitutes. But the text never says that. The older brother made that up, just like this guy makes it up. It is interesting how self-righteousness begins to sort of look for, even make things up sometimes to criticize other people, right? Um, So... (laughs) His prayer is, is unbelievably arrogant. And he even has the gall to say, this tax collector, to identify him specifically in his prayer. And yet I think the Pharisee probably thought he was being helpful. You ever been around somebody who's like incredibly arrogant and thinks they're helpful? It's about the most annoying person you can be around. Oh, let me help you with that, you know. And you're like, ugh, I don't, I, don't want, you know, I don't want this help. It's very hard as a parent not to do this to your kids all the time. But I see it sometimes. You're like, I don't need help. I don't need your help. Um, this guy thinks he's being helpful. He's so completely out of touch with who he is, it's frightening. But this is the way of self-righteousness. It's often so subtle. We often think that we're being helpful when we actually are being so offensive and ugly. What's he trusting in? Well, he tells God what he's trusting in. We don't have to guess. He's trusting in the fact that he goes above and beyond what was required. He goes above and beyond what was required. Um, If anybody could be justified... If anybody could be seen as righteous because of what they did, this would be the guy. He would be the guy. Now, I, I want to draw you back to this verse 9, where he says, to, where the, Luke tells us the context, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Because I think, you know, One of the ways that I found it helpful to think about self-righteousness or to see self-righteousness in myself is to think about where am I being critical? Where am I being critical? Now, the hard thing about this in our day and age, we live in a, a world that so much preaches this message of pluralism, that there is nothing that's really true or right, that everybody's opinions are just as true as everybody else's. And I think that in response to that, it's made it even more difficult for Christians to find a way to say, yes, this is true, but that doesn't mean that I'm better than you. It's very difficult. I mean, Paul actually goes so far to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and a lot of Christians are shocked to find that this is in the Bible, but the Apostle Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? And yet, I don't know about you, but I think most, most people who are outside of the church, if you ask them what do they think the church thinks about them, they would say, well, they judge us, <laughs> right? 
What, what, is the, what does the church generally portray to people who are outside of the church? Well, we do things like boycott this and that. We, you know, stand up and protest this and protest that. Constantly judging those who are outside of the church. Even though Paul, the Apostle Paul, says it's, no, it's not his business, his job to judge those outside of the church. It's the self-righteousness is so damaging, so damaging to the church's witness in the world. It's probably been very damaging to most of you. I think it's not just people outside the church. I think it's people inside the church that wonder whether they really want to be a part of it. And so you have this weird situation where people say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Now, biblically speaking, that's a bizarre thing to say. It's a bizarre thing to say, but you can understand why people feel compelled to say that. It's because I don't like the way Christians are. That, that, you know, I, I, I like Jesus, but these Christians, I, I just don't know what to do with it. They're always judging and being critical and, and whatnot. And, and I'm telling you, this self-righteousness can even be about the silliest sorts of things. Think about the bands you like and why you like them. I love this quote from Chuck Klosterman. He's one of my favorite writers. He's, uh, I think, one of the most perceptive critics about popular culture, not just music. He also writes for Sports Illustrated. But um, in his book, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, which is a riot and very profound um, insights about human nature and pop culture, um, he says this, The most wretched people in the world are those who tell you they like every kind of music except country. Now, did you do that when you moved to Nashville? When I moved to Nashville from Berklee College of Music, and I was this jab snob, and I was going to come down here and work in a recording studio, I swore to everybody that I was never going to like country. Right? And then I married Wendy, and I started to have to listen to some country, and said, well, that isn't so bad. I actually worked with a few artists that were really good, and it was hard to deny. Um, and now I, I kind of like, well, if it's old country, but as this, as this quote... <laughs> As the quote is going to show you why that's funny, listen to what he says. The most wretched people in the world are those who tell you they like every kind of music except country. People who say that are boorish and pretentious at the same time. All it means is they've managed to figure out the most rudimentary rule of pop sociology. They know that hipsters gauge the coolness of others by their espoused taste in sound. And they know that hipsters hate modern country music. And they hate it because it speaks to normal people in a tangible, rational manner. Hipsters hate it because they hate Midwesterners, they hate Southerners, and they hate people with real jobs. <laughs> now, this is from a chapter in his book called Toby versus Moby, where he's arguing that Toby Keith is more real and authentic to normal people than um, to- uh, Moby and, and sort of, you know, kind of alternative music. And he's got a, a whole great, it's a fascinating argument um, about how sort of indie, alt-country kind of folks sort of put Depression-era sort of living on a pedestal. But he says poor people don't like that, that kind of music at all. Poor people don't like being poor. They don't think that it's romantic the way, you know, rich suburban kids that, you know, do sort of alt-country think it is. It's, it's really, anyway, it's fascinating. But even about music... We can be righteous, you know, righteous. Or, you know, we can have Mac righteousness, right? And, you know, I mean, the most ridiculous sorts of things, you know. Um, and now those cool commercials, you know, make you really proud of be- being Mac righteous, right? Because who would want to own a PC? Who, really, who of you would want to own a PC? Um, 
All right, so self-righteousness is subtle. We can laugh about it, but it's also, it's, it's probably the chief barrier to people even being interested in what Christ is about and what Christianity is about. And it's so incredibly ridiculous, as we're going to see, because it's so absolutely contrary to what Christianity is about. But let's look at the tax collector to get, get, to get at this. Who's the tax collector? Like I said, he's a thief and a traitor. He was considered that, and he probably was. He worked for the Romans. They're the oppressive occupiers, the army that's occupying Jerusalem. The Romans, like I said, sold the office of tax collector. So if he's a tax collector, he bought it, which means he's already a scoundrel. Okay. His body language, look at his body language. He stands far off too. But it's not because he wants to stay undefiled from touching somebody who maybe didn't do all the right things. He stands off because he feels totally unworthy. But you see, the difference between him and the Pharisee is he understands reality. He is unworthy. He is unworthy. He has no right to stand before God. He has no right to stand before God. And he knows it. And he beats his breast to show it. Now, you may not understand the significance of beating your breast, but in the Middle Eastern culture, Men do not beat their breasts. There is only one time in the Bible where it says that men and women together beat their breasts. And it's at the foot of the cross. When Jesus dies, it says that the people there watching what happened beat their breasts. It's an incredibly dramatic thing that Jesus says here. This man is completely distraught. He is undone. Do you remember that, you know, scene where um, Peter is in the boat with Jesus and Jesus, you know, stills the storm, you know, and he says, you know, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. Or it's like in Isaiah where he says, I am undone in Isaiah 6 when he sees a vision of God holy and lifted up. Literally, Isaiah says he's coming apart at the seams. I'm like coming apart at the seams. That's the picture here this guy has. He sees who he is. He is in utter despair. He has no hope in his own righteousness at all. But how does he pray? What's fascinating. Now, most of the translations miss this. I didn't get a chance to check the ESV on this. The NIV says says this in verse 13. God have mercy on me, a sinner. First of all, it's the sinner. When he looks at himself, he says, I am the sinner. He owns it. And as far as he's concerned, there's nobody who can compare with him. But not only that, the word that he uses, that the NIV translates mercy here, is not the normal word that's used for mercy in Greek. We know that Luke knows the normal word because down in verse 17, a little later in this same chapter, he uses the normal word for mercy. The word he uses here is the word, it's a very technical word that means make atonement for me. He's standing in front of the animal sacrifice, beating his breast, saying, I have no righteousness of my own. Make atonement for me. 
This is the essence of faith. Lord Jesus, I have nothing to offer, but bless me anyway. One of my favorite pictures of this, and I didn't have a chance to preach on this passage this time going through the, the parables, but there's this place where there's this woman, Gentile woman, she's not a Jewish woman, who wants Jesus to heal her daughter. And he says to her, why should I give the bread of the children of Israel to dogs? He calls the woman a dog. I don't know if that upsets you, if you think about Jesus. But what's amazing after that, she says, yeah, <laughs> um, even the dogs have the right to eat the crumbs from the children's table. Bless me anyway. She says, all right, you're right. I'm a dog. Now, you may think that's offensive, but in the Middle East in the first century, it's doubly offensive. They don't keep dogs as pets. Dogs are not cute and cuddly at all. It's a foul, disgusting animal. In, in middle, even my Middle Eastern neighbors like are flabbergasted that people have dogs for pets. They like canaries. <laughs> you know, they don't like dogs. All right? But this, you know, th- this woman expressed, and Jesus says, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. He commends her. He's like, wow. That's one of the greatest things I've ever heard come out of somebody's mouth is basically what he says. I'm a dog. Bless me anyway. That's what this guy is saying. I'm utterly undone. I have nothing to offer. Bless me anyway. How can he say that? Because he's looking at the sacrifice. Because he's looking at God's commitment to bless people anyway who don't deserve it. Do you understand? See, here's the, here's the glorious thing. God gives us a way out of this delusional trap of self-righteousness. And it's this, look at the sacrifice. Look at the sacrifice. It's when we forget about who Jesus is and what he's done that self-righteousness is able to grow and to fester. We have to see regularly Jesus crucified. I mean, Paul went so far as to say, you know, when I was with you guys in Corinth, I didn't preach anything except Christ and him crucified. Now, I don't think that the only thing he ever got up and said is, Christ and him crucified, Christ and him crucified. Come on, guys, you know, chant it with me. No, I think he taught him from all kinds of places in the Bible. But what he says is, the whole Bible is about Christ and him crucified. Every message, everything I taught you was about this. It didn't matter whether I was teaching you from Proverbs, I was teaching you from Jonah, I was teaching you from Habakkuk, or I was teaching you, you know, things that Jesus said when he was walking around. It was all about Jesus and him crucified. That's what it's all about. And we need to be focused on it over and over again. It's the only thing that can melt our defenses And there's no way we can give up on our self-righteousness, as wretched as it is, as poor as it is, unless we see that there is a righteousness that can really clothe us and make us beautiful in God's sight. Do you know what's fascinating to me in my years working with college students, this is 15th year now, it's often the prettiest girls and the most talented that I've ever known that are the most insecure. And it shouldn't be surprising because the Bible says that flattery is a snare, that people that flatter you want to control you. 
And one of the great tragedies is how often what should be encouragement is merely flattery. And so you have this weird thing where you'll, you'll, you'll meet somebody and I'll meet somebody and you'll be like, this girl seems to have everything going for her as far as what the world would say. She's talented, she's beautiful, um, she's smart, all these things. And yet she's incredibly insecure as you begin to, to get to know her. And this is, this is this weird dilemma. It's like their whole life, they've only been told that they're talented and they're beautiful. They long to be encouraged at a deeper level. Because to be encouraged or flattered that way makes you feel at one level like you crave it, but at another level, it makes you incredibly vulnerable and insecure because you know that that's not going to last forever, right? And, and so what I'm saying is, you know, this, this idea that, that we can't let go even of the things that we know are hurting us that we trust in unless we see that we have something else that can really clothe us. In other words, even if you despise people flattering you, you can't give it up unless you have something more substantive to take its place. You may know, you may even despise people that tell you that you're beautiful or tell you that, you know, you're talented at one level, you're like, thank you. But another level, you're like, oh, I live for that, but I hate that I live for that. Because I want to be encouraged at such a deeper level, but you can't, you can't let it go unless there's something more real and solid. In other words, unless you have real righteousness, you can't even let go of the shreds of righteousness that don't really cover you anyway. You know, the, the picture in, um, in, the, uh, in the Garden of Eden where they take these, these um, fig leaves and cover themselves. Fig leaves are actually very big. They're very big. The problem is they have huge holes in them. So it's a wonderfully, it's a wonderfully evocative picture there of Adam and Eve trying to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. Fig leaves make terrible coverings because they're full of holes. And so are the various things that we use to try and hide our nakedness. They're full of holes. But unless you have a robe of righteousness that's truly beautiful, you can't let go of the fig leaves. And so the only way out of the trap of self-righteousness, even when you see it, is the robe of righteousness that comes from Christ. His righteousness. Anything that we, that we look to for righteousness besides Jesus guys, is a rival to his righteousness. And it's, of course, always the good things that we turn into rivals for Christ's righteousness. You know, there was a great revival that happened in this country and in England and a um, lot of places in the 1700s. It was called the Great Awakening. A man named George Whitfield was greatly used of God during that revival. And one of his sermons, he'd actually, there's actually not very many of his sermons that have come down to us from that time. But one of his most famous sermons, he says this. It's fascinating. He says that Christians are people not just who repent or turn away from their bad deeds. Christians are people who turn away from their good deeds. That you can't really have peace with Christ until you reject your own righteousness. This is the way he puts it. He says, before you can have peace in your hearts, you must not only be sick of your sins, but you must be made sick of your righteousness. 
of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol that is taken out of your heart. The pride of your heart will not let us submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you've never felt the deficiency of your own righteousness, you can never come to Jesus. There are a great many now that may say, well, we believe all this, but there's a great difference between talking and feeling. Did you ever feel the want or the lack of a dear Redeemer? Did you ever feel the deficiency of your own righteousness? And can you now say from the heart, Lord, thou mayest justly damn me for the best duties that I ever did perform. If you are not thus brought out of yourself, you may speak peace to yourselves, but yet there is no peace. So our righteousness can be the barrier to peace because it's the thing that keeps us from fleeing to Jesus, beating our breasts and saying, I have nothing to offer you, but bless me anyway. Not only that, not only that, but even beating ourselves up can be a rival to Christ's righteousness. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. He says, your healing is in his stripes, Christ's stripes. He means the the lashing that he took, and not in your own, in his griefs, and not in your griefs. I implore you, do not make your repentance into a rival of the stripes of Jesus. For so it would become an antichrist. When your eye is full of tears, look through them to Christ, whom you may see whether your eye be wet or dry. In the Christ on the cross, there are five wounds, but you have not to add even another one of your own to them. In him and in him alone is all your healing. In him who from head to foot became a mass of suffering that you diseased from foot to head to foot, might from the crown of your head to the sole of your feet be made perfectly whole. What he's saying is don't think, it's like sometimes we get in this thing where it's like, okay, I know that I've done the wrong thing, but I'm not going to go to Jesus for forgiveness. Instead, I'm going to beat myself up so that maybe God won't have the heart to make me feel bad. Do you see what that is? That's making your own stripes, your own beating up of yourself into a rival for Christ's righteousness, thinking that you, need to, that you need to feel really bad for a while before you can expect to be forgiven is deeply offensive to Christ. I think in some ways one of the keys to ask yourself, do I really understand the gospel, is how quick can you go from seeing your sin to running to Jesus? Do you feel like you have to sit in your guilt for a while and wallow in it before God really will forgive you? Then you don't understand the righteousness of Jesus. The picture we have here, the picture we're encouraged to embrace is I have nothing to offer. Bless me anyway. And as we see the sacrifice of Jesus, we know that there's not anything else that needs to be done. Nothing else needs to be done. Well, let me, let me just say one or two other little things as we close here. 
Have you ever seen your sin as overwhelming? Now, here's the thing. For some people in this room, what they really need, what you really need is to see that I really am a sinner and that I really need forgiveness. You really need to see that your righteousness is repugnant to God. Because what it says to him is, Jesus, your death was not needed. Some of us need to wrestle with that. That when we trust in our own righteousness, what we're saying to Jesus is, eh, who needs, who needs you? Who needs your death? I can take care of this problem. But for others, maybe you see your sin very clearly. And what you need to see is that Jesus is sacrificed. And Jesus Jesus is the one who has done everything so that you can say, bless me anyway, and he will. Not because you're so sorrowful over your sin, but because Jesus' death was all that was required. Right? The only way that you're going to be able to let go of your righteousness, even the righteousness that you know in your deepest part of your soul isn't working, is if you see Jesus. It's why we sing these hymns. It's why we gather together so that we can see that Jesus lived and died in our place. Jesus even lived and died for Pharisees and for self-righteous idiots. That's good news. It's good news, right? I don't care how self-righteous you are. You can't out the love of Jesus. You can't. I mean, this tax collector was a wretched guy, and he went home justified. That word justified is very, it's connected to righteousness. Connected, right? Same root word. And it means that he went home beautiful in God's sight. Being seen as somebody who had done everything that God required from the heart. Guys, do you know the joy that comes from that? I mean, we try to convince ourselves that God likes us because we mean well. But that will never bring an explosion of joy in your life. Like knowing that you're justified. That God looks at you and says, wow. Because he looks at you if you're in Christ and he sees Christ. He sees everything that Jesus did. You know, I'll close with this story. I know you've heard this, but you know, often when I was growing up, I would hear this story, you know, that Jesus tells, you know, basically has this book and everything, or God has this book and everything you've ever done, everything you ever thought, you know, is written down in this book, you know, and what's going to happen on judgment day when God opens up this book, he's going to see all this stuff. What are you going to do? And then, you know, the answer to this problem is presented as if you come to Jesus, the slate's wiped clean. Your book will be erased. He'll open it up and there's nothing there. Great. The problem is, Jesus says, what God really requires is for you to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength from the moment you're born to the moment you die. And if you get to heaven with a blank book, that's not good. But here's what Christianity really is. Christianity is that Jesus also has a book. 
Of course, God sees everything you do. He knows everything you've done, everything you thought, everything you even thought about doing, right? He knows it all. But he also knows everything that Jesus did and everything he thought. And when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus and you say, I have nothing to offer you but bless me anyway, the covers of those books get switched. If you're a Christian, you don't have a blank book. You have a book that when it's opened up, what God sees is everything that Jesus did. Right? I mean, do you really want to pit your love for others against the love of Jesus for others? Wouldn't you much rather have credit for the way Jesus loved people than the way you love people? I mean, you might try to convince yourself that God would let you slip on by. Well, I haven't killed anybody. You know, this is what people do. Well, I haven't ever killed anybody, you know. Okay, believe me, that does not produce an explosion of joy in your life like knowing that I get credit for the way Jesus loved people. That's what you get credit for if you're a Christian. And you want to you instead hold on to your own love for people and, and offer that instead to God? No, offer through the hand of faith the righteousness of Jesus to God. And you will see the smile of God that will never end. That's the heart of Christianity. Let's pray.